0: From the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast, this is U.S. Farm Report.
1: Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Wheat prices soared smashing record highs before taking a nosedive midweek. Yeah, it's a combination of the global factors. We'll break down what spooked the market. Running out of time to plant. The Northern Corn Belt may be forced to now declare prevent plant. It's been a real struggle to get the crop planted in North Dakota. As avian influenza spreads, how does this outbreak compare to 2015?
2: I don't ever want to go through that again. That was miserable.
1: That's our Farm Journal report. And in John's world,
3: do we really waste 40% of the food?
1: Well, another weekend, brings a record high for gas prices as well as diesel prices. That's as a possible diesel shortage weighs on producers' minds. AAA reporting the new record is above $450 a gallon, and prices at the pump are above $4 a gallon in all states in the U.S. for the first time ever. In California, the most expensive state, well, prices are averaging over $6 a gallon for gasoline, while five other states are above $5 a gallon. And diesel prices, well, those are even more shocking, now above $557 a gallon.
3: When was it that diesel aerial gas prices got wild? last, I don't think it was this high though. I think we probably paid in the threes for farm fuel, but not four and definitely not close to five.
1: Well, Iowa is now the first state in the nation to require most gas stations sell fuel with at least 15% ethanol. Republican Governor Kim Reynolds signing it into law this week. Reynolds calling it a victory for Iowa farmers and biofuels advocates. It's estimated the ethanol industry consumes about half of Iowa's corn crop. Well, drier, warmer weather last week finally started to push planting forward across the corn belt. USDA reporting in the latest crop progress report that 49% of the corn crop is now planted. That's a 27 percentage point jump in just a week, but it still lags average by 18 percentage points. And checking out soybeans, now 30% planted across the country. That's 18 percentage points higher than last week and now just 9 percentage points behind the 5-year average. Well, wheat prices caused a bit of a whiplash this week. That's as a major announcement out of India when it comes to wheat exports sent prices soaring to start the week. The country saying it's mostly prohibiting exports because the nation's food security is under threat. India is the world's second biggest wheat grower, the country's government saying it would still allow exports for which letters of credit have already been issued and that it would consider sales to countries looking to meet their food security needs. The news, it pushed futures dramatically higher to start the week, but they did trend back down midweek. Reuters reports India's wheat crop was damaged during the country's hottest march on record, and that caused yields to potentially drop by as much as 50 percent in some areas of the country.
4: The world is counting on them to export roughly 8, 8.5 million metric tons of wheat. They've so far shipped somewhere between 2, 2.5 million. So now that they're not in the marketplace, point and simple, roughly 5 million metric tons of wheat, if they do not come back out into the export market, the world has got to find a different supplier and the reality with the with the war going on in the ukraine losing the ukraine wheat exports already it's already making a very tight situation before the exit of the indian market exporters an even tighter situation
1: well drought has been the story here in the u.s when it comes to wheat and now many producers impacted by drought and wildfires are getting some relief. USDA saying commodity and specialty crop producers impacted by natural disasters last year and the year before will soon be getting emergency relief payments totaling $6 billion through WIP Plus. It estimates the first phase of payments will reach more than 220,000 producers. The first phase will cover losses to crops, trees, bushes, and vines. More information is available on the Emergency Relief Program website. Well, updating you on efforts to move grain out of Ukraine, Poland's ag minister is saying the war torn country's grain exports could be routed through Poland. Poland's ag minister is speaking in Warsaw alongside U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. Vilsack in Europe this week to discuss with other G7 ag ministers the ongoing impacts of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The minister's issuing a communique.
0: That included a condemnation of the invasion by Russia of Ukraine, a condemnation as well of the use by Russia of hunger as a weapon, and the fact that Russian soldiers have also been responsible for the theft of grain in the southern part of Ukraine, all of which we roundly and very specifically condemned. A recognition in that communique of the importance of frictionless trade and the need for all of us to continue a commitment to sustainable productivity. It's important and necessary to note that we are dealing with food security issues because of the disruption of grain production in Ukraine and export of grain and oils previously produced in
1: Ukraine. The Wall Street Journal reporting the U.N. Secretary-General has asked Russia to allow the shipment of some Ukrainian grain in exchange for helping facilitate Russian and Belarusian exports of potash. All right, that's it for the news. Well, after a massive warm-up again this week, frost and freeze warnings are taking over this weekend. How long will the cold last? We'll have a check of weather next. Time now for a check of the weather. Andrew Whitney is filling in for Matt Yurisovic this week. And the drought picture, well, it has definitely not improved everywhere.
5: And as we take a look at the uh, drought outlook that was just released uh, for today, again, we continue to watch some worsening conditions still down across the uh, Texas uh, Panhandle, where, again, we're likely going to continue to see drier weather prevailing here over the next uh, several days. And, in fact, as we go throughout this last full week of May, We're going to be watching this drier area to kind of expand here across the four corners and we're going to see some of that heat building on up as well and as we take a closer look at the root zone again you can see where that moisture is saturated up across the far northern plains the Pacific Northwest and meanwhile much of the Midwestern states but a lot of red showing up there across the desert sunbelt areas as well as parts of the southern plains which is not good news as you'll see coming up here. We're going to continue to see drier weather prevailing here as we go throughout this final week of May and likely lingering into at least the first half of June. Looking at the jet stream for this week, we're going to still be dealing with some cooler weather, but watch what happens as we go towards late week, Wednesday and the Thursday, right on into the Memorial Holiday Weekend. We're going to be watching this upper-level pattern building on in here, this upper-level ridge, and that's going to allow this heat to kind of build back on in here, kind of a dome of heat that's going to expand across much of the lower 48. And just watching a little bit cooler weather with this trough up across the Pacific Northwest. Otherwise, again, uh, we're looking at a warm holiday weekend for many of us across the United States. Looking at the pattern here for Monday, we're going to be dealing with that high pressure across the Great Lakes area. Meanwhile, all eyes on the stationary front that could bring with it a scattered shower or two throughout the parts of uh, Texas. And then as we go throughout midweek on Wednesday, we'll be watching cooler weather kind of prevailing with that. The dip into that jet stream with that trough here. Meanwhile, again, this high pressure will continue to kind of exit the area and we're going to be watching warmer weather kind of building back on in to parts of the Midwestern states. And as we get that warmer air surging on in, there will be a slight chance here to see a few spotty showers, maybe in a few thunderstorms as well along a few of these boundaries that will likely set up as we round out this week and going forward into the Memorial Holiday weekend. Looking at the temperature trend for this week here. Again, overall, some below normal temperatures can be expected across the far eastern northern plains as well as the upper portion of the Midwest as well as the Pacific Northwest. Meanwhile, above average temperatures can be seen across the Sun Belt areas as well as across the deep south. Notice those deeper reds there. So temperatures could be well above average. And looking at the precipitation trend for this week, likely seeing above average precipitation where some showers and thunderstorms get going across the eastern half of the U.S., Meanwhile, a drier Sunbelt area again. And as we go on into the uh, final week here, the first week of June, we're gonna really see that heat building on in here and look at the precipitation trend here going towards that first full week of June. More below normal temperatures across the Sunbelt area.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Well, weather a factor yet again in the markets this week. That's as there's a close eye on planting progress. When we come back, we'll dive into the markets and what moved wheat and soybeans and how much prevent plant we could see in the Northern Corn Belt. We'll discuss it all next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Joining us now, we have Christy Van On Chiseth as well as Naomi Bloom joining us. A volatile week in the markets. Naomi, let's start with wheat. Have kind of a whiplash following the market's export ban announcement coming out over the weekend. That meant that we opened with wheat prices, you know, limit up. We've seen some uh, retracement since then. What is driving wheat prices at this point?
6: Yeah, it's a combination of the global factors, the global fundamentals. Like you said, the India ban got the market just shooting higher for prices I think technically speaking though, the July Chicago contract was able to reach the high that it had back in early March, and that was the technical target. Once we hit that price level, traders said, okay, that's good enough, and then they started to see some profit taking, and the sell-off then followed. So we are, of course, still keeping an eye on the Kansas wheat tour, still confirming how small that crop is. The wheat story I don't think is over and done with, but for prices to get any higher than where we've been, it would take some sort of additional friendly news. I think right now for the short term, we're going to see wheat prices start to consolidate in a sideways pattern until we hear a little bit more about what's happening with Ukraine. Can we get any exports out of that area? And then keeping an eye on our wheat market yet here in the United States this spring and summer, along with what's happening in Europe. Yeah, we
1: have to keep that world view. But Christy here at home, Naomi mentioned that Kansas Wheat Tour. We know that the wheat in the plains struggled. At the same time, spring wheat and planting progress were having some hurdles there as well.
7: Yeah, it's been a real struggle to get the crop planted in North Dakota, especially spring wheat. You know, North Dakota is known for their spring wheat. Um, They plant over 5 million acres of it typically in a year. And so right now, when you look at it, we're 17% planted in North Dakota for spring wheat uh, versus 81% last year. And the average is 60%. So, is some delays in there and you also look at just in general uh profitability you're you're up against a timeline for both wheat and corn and what is your favorable crop to be planting right now and i think a lot of producers are saying let's try and get this corn in the ground so i'm worried about what you might see with spring wheat however there needs to be demand on that when you talk about lack of of the crop we really haven't seen our export pick up enough to justify that Basis levels through the Dakotas and Minnesota for spring wheat, still pretty poor, meaning that if we have a lack of crop, we do need to see that demand pick up before we can see some major changes there for price movement.
1: Well, speaking of that planting pace, when I mean, USDA showed us farmers made significant progress last week, Naomi, doubling the planting pace. However, we are still behind. So are there still concerns when it comes to that planting pace right now?
6: And the answer is it's a mixed answer because the eastern corn belt has been plugging away just fine parts of iowa illinois the progress has been exceptional but two states are still lagging in the planted pace and that's north dakota and south dakota i'm sorry north dakota and minnesota and, and the reason that they're important because combined acres you're looking at 13 percent of the corn crop is between north dakota and minnesota And 16 and a half percent of our soybean crop is in between those two states. And if you remember on the soybean crop, a good portion of the beans that go to China, that go to Asia, go out the PNW. And so those are beans from North Dakota. So we need those acres to get planted. So when we look at the crop progress report on Monday, yeah, we're going to see that the crop overall is catching up. But for some of the key export market and those states that contribute to that export market, what they say is really critical,
1: yeah, and Christy, just a couple of months ago, we were talking about how farmers were going to do everything they can to plant this year. That is still the case. But ultimately, we're reminded that Mother Nature has the final say. Have we seen that much progress in North Dakota, Northern South Dakota, as well as Minnesota? And realistically, what impact could that have on those private plant numbers uh, that we may see?
7: Yeah, we have not really seen the progress that we've been hoping in those states, and honestly, we work through rain running through here right now, uh, and you look at these markets and you say, when are we going to catch a break? And honestly, there's been areas of southern um, Minnesota that have gotten rain, uh, and they just they they can't get going. It seems like they might dry out, and then they get up a pop up shower followed behind. This weekend is supposed to be really cool, and that is not going to help them dry down. So when you look at where we're at compared to where we've been in the past, um, 2019 was a really wet year for the Corn Belt as a general, but 2020 was a wet year for North Dakota. In 2020, they only got in 1.95 million acres of corn. Currently, we are forecasted here to have 3.6 million acres of corn in North Dakota. So realistically, if you're saying, hey, this is as wet as we saw in uh, 2019, which our planting pace is behind 2019 at this point, and we're running out of time, you could be seeing that 1.95 million acres or less, uh, along with some changes. You know, North Dakota last year, Uh, You can remember just how dire their crop was. They had severe drought. Uh, It was horrible to see those pictures. And you really felt for the cattle producers actually out there, lack of fields to graze. Uh, And now we have a uh, corn PP plan that you can say, hey, I'll take corn PP behind that. I can plant um, forage for feed.
1: Well, if we do see farmers make that switch and move to more soybeans just because they cannot get the corn planted, the soybean market does not seem to be noticing because we saw some significant price increases this week. So what is that underlying factor that's really driving soybeans right now? Last well, Naomi Bloom later on U.S. Farm Report.
0: It's time to sign up for the 2022 United Pork Americas Conference in Orlando, Florida. Register today at unitedporkamericas.com and join us September 7th through the 9th.
1: Well, statistics show on average, Americans waste about 40% of the food that they purchase. But is this a rule versus city issue or across the board? Here's John Phipps. In a
3: recent top producer column entitled Farmers Don't Understand City Folk, This comment popped up toward the bottom, and it got my attention. When city folk stop wasting 30 to 40% of the food that should be put on the table, then I'll listen to how they can't afford it. Uh, Now, I kind of disagree, but I too had that vague number of 40% of food being wasted in my mind and decided to check it out. There are several estimates from government agencies, the food industry, and organizations working to relieve hunger. But this chart shows a typical split of waste sources. The overall 40% of production being wasted seems to be a consensus number. But that is not for uh, just home waste, but all waste. As you can see, food waste at home is considerable, greater than all sources, except manufacturing. Now, manufacturing waste can be bad production runs, like too many Twinkies. Uh, unusable inventory, or simply overproduction, especially of highly processed foods like ready-to-eat meals. Zeroing in on just waste from home, it is about a quarter of all waste, but again that only means about 10% of the food production, the raw food supply. While food waste numbers are shockingly high, the factors are largely influenced by consumer choices. Perfect-looking produce is a really big one. Large portions in buffets and restaurants are are other examples. Labels can be confusing. An expiration date is not the same as a use-by label, but consumers treat them, but it's the same. Unsurprisingly, waste is higher with perishable foods. Produce, dairy, and meat account for about two-thirds. There are multiple efforts by various organizations to reduce this sad statistic. It is not as simple as give it to the poor, either. Waste comes from multiple sources in multiple forms, and much, like uneaten food, cannot feasibly be redeemed. Regardless of the reasons, I could find no data supporting the idea that urban dwellers waste a higher percentage of food compared to rural dwellers. City dwellers do waste more in, in total because there's so many more of them. There are data showing waste increases with income, which also seems kind of logical. There are also large differences between nations. And while I have no idea what's going on down under, Americans and Aussies seem to be the global leaders in per capita food waste.
1: Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, we'll check in with machinery Pete. Repeat. Tractor Tales this weekend.
8: Your next piece of equipment is on machinerypeat.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only
9: on Machinerypeat.com. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks.
2: This week we're off to west central Iowa to learn about a classic orchard tractor.
9: It was produced mostly for orchard work, and the, the unique part is that it has very, has an excess of tin work to keep protect the operator. And most of the work in the orchard was pulling a sprayer, in a, usually in a trailer, and they might have had a hand boom on it spray the trees. It has the same engine as an M Farmall, and I've never been around one, but that's about it. My son-in-law was a, in a job site in New Mexico and saw this tractor along with an OS-6 and let me know they were there. And a year later they were still there so we called and got them purchased and went down with and a trailer and went down and got them. When we got these tractors they, they were pretty rough shape. did not have the side shields. We brought them here to my place and then I decided to keep the OS-6 and he took the OSX 6 home to Minnesota and rebuilt it there and I helped him some there but he did most of it. Oh we found some red dirt in the air cleaner which The only place I could think of it comes from is Oklahoma, and my son-in-law mentioned, or Steve mentioned, it might come from Southern California. We'll probably just continue to show both of them, just get them out on Sunday and drive them around now and then. I have Harold with this one on mine a little bit, but it's not the the easiest tractor to drive. It doesn't have any steering assist.
1: (laughs) Thanks so much. Well, still to come, avian influenza has been devastating for poultry producers this year, but is it as bad as 2015? That's our Farm Journal Report,
6: next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition.
1: Welcome back. Well, avian influenza is hitting poultry producers across the country, especially hard this spring. The good news is that it doesn't seem to be as devastating as 2015. That was the largest outbreak ever recorded in the U.S., with some calling it the most significant animal health event in U.S. history. Farm Journal's Michelle Rook joins us now. And Michelle, are there a lot of similarities between the current outbreak and what the poultry industry experienced in 2015? Time to date, nearly
10: 38 million birds in 35 states have been lost in this year's avian influenza outbreak, closing in on 2015 when USDA reported losses of 7.4 million turkeys and 43 million egg layers. But that is where the similarities end. In 2015, the high path avian influenza virus was spread by lateral transmission, mostly through human contact. But Dr. Craig Rolls, president of the Iowa Poultry Association, says in 2022, the spread is much different.
4: What they're seeing in this particular outbreak is that there's more direct wild bird transmission direct to the farm in terms of introductions. And that's what's different. This virus this time is circulating through a wide population of wild birds and, I mean, we're talking dozens and dozens of species of birds that has been identified in. And so our risk factors are slightly different.
10: They still aren't sure how the virus is getting into the barns, but do know it emerged earlier than in 2015 and has persisted with the cool spring. Rolls, who's also in charge of cage-free production for Versova, says that's because the virus has adapted.
4: Historically, avian influenza started as a low path, right, just a routine influenza and it would get introduced into a domestic bird and then it would mutate into high path. This particular strain of influenza started in Asia, it moved to northern Europe a couple years ago and then it finally got to our borders just in the last year and it's been amazing how fast it has spread across um, all species of birds and the flyways, it's been remarkable.
10: In 2015, five percent of the wild bird population carried the disease. This year, it's estimated at nearly 35 percent. However, due to changes made in biosecurity protocols in 2015, one of the largest egg producers in Iowa, Centerfresh, has had only minimal losses in their 20 million layer operation this year.
2: In 2015, we were hit severely with bird flu. We had to put down eight million birds in our facility. So far, this go around in 2022, we've only had one of our pullet sites hit um, with bird flu. Uh, it, so it's only affected about 240,000 pullets.
10: Centerfresh, along with the rest of the industry, spent millions of dollars to adopt what is called the Danish system.
4: In the outbreaks that are occurring in this year, the epidemiologists are telling us that, that our efforts have really limited the transmission of virus by that route, by human transmitting, tr- transmission of virus.
10: Indiana turkey producer Kevin Kelb's operation was spared this spring, unlike the last outbreak.
2: No issues with the bird flu this year. Just uh, thank, thank the good Lord. I don't ever want to go through that again. That was miserable.
10: He says biosecurity is the main reason his operation was not infected, while flocks just 10 miles away were hit.
2: You know, we got um, lines of separation in our buildings where you know you, you come in, you'll you'll take your your clothes off there on the from the outside, and then uh, yes, you're in the same room, but once you jump over to the other side of that line, will we'll put different clothes on. That's only been in that building. Um, you know, we got um, foot baths that we use. We wash and, uh, wash our hands, sterilize our hands. <laughs>
10: The other thing unique to 2022 has been the rapid response by USDA state animal health officials and producers to depopulate the flocks.
4: The difference between 2015 and now is almost night and day in terms of the speed at which the process unfolds with all of those partners to make sure that we are bringing the virus under control as quickly as possible.
10: Duema, who's also president of the Iowa Aid Council, says that will also allow the repopulation of flocks to happen much quicker this time around. If you're fast enough and you're
2: on top of it, it's probably three months or more before, you know, where in 2015, it was, it was probably seven to nine months before you were able to populate again. And, you know, we have some sites now that uh, by the first of June will be released and and ready to repopulate.
10: Iowa saw its last case the first week in May, and Joyma hopes the outbreak is over as warmer temperatures kill the virus. However, they can't let their guard down as there's no treatment and vaccines impact exports.
2: There's a lot of trade issues that go along with if we vaccinate, you know, if if America vaccinates, um, it's gotta be a worldwide cooperation between all the countries because all of a sudden, all these countries will throw up trade barriers.
10: So until then, he says poultry producers remain vigilant to protect the industry and their livelihoods.
2: There's nothing more devastating, more heartbreaking than to see all your
10: birds die. For U.S. Farm Report, I'm Michelle Rook.
1: Well, thank you, Michelle. The spread of avian influenza is largely attributed to the migratory birds, and the virus was also recently detected in wild turkeys for the first time ever. All right, when we come back, what is the outlook for cattle prices when you have concerns with the stock market, as well as rising costs for gasoline and at the store? We'll talk to our marketing analysts when we come back. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Talked a lot about wheat, the situation in the northern Corn Belt uh, with Christy and Naomi before. But let's talk about the soybean prices because we saw volatility definitely continue to be a factor in this market this week. Some major swings. What are soybeans watching at this point?
6: Well, the soybean market right now is just continuing to be aware of how tight the ending stocks are in the United States. 235 million bushel for old crop, just over 300 million for the new crop. And that's with all of those bigger expected acres that the USDA gave us on the March 31st report. So actually, I'm thinking that the soybean market is watching a couple of things. It's nervous that if we don't get all of those acres into the ground, like we were talking about with North Dakota, that we're not going to have enough production available for where the demand is because the USDA increased demand for new crop. We've got more demand for exports. We've got more demand for the crush. And when you take into account how on a global perspective, all of our um, edible oils are still lower on supplies, we need the U.S. to have this big crop out there. So I do think that the new crop soybeans are watching that. I think that the new crop November price is ready to pounce if it needs to entice more acres to definitely get planted. So really keep an eye on that new November price in the coming weeks.
1: Chrissy, you know, when we were at Northern uh, Corn and Soybean Expo in North Dakota in February, we talked a lot about renewable diesel and the possibility there. But now, as we look at the shortage of cooking oil and some of the vegetable oil that could be a factor, And knowing that we need all of those oils when it comes to meeting some of these renewable diesel demand. Do you think that it really does cause renewable diesel to maybe be pushed back a little bit when it comes to the timeline?
7: I don't think it does. I think what you end up seeing is uh, the battle on the cash side of things. So,
1: you know, producers
7: in this northern part of the Corn Belt are in for. Um, what I think could be something really special moving forward with renewable diesel. Uh, You have a sweet spot that has just really found itself a niche in the soybeans. We plant and grow really great soybeans around here. It gives us some flexibility. Like Naomi said earlier, the PNW ships a ton of beans out of that area. And now you have some crush facilities being built currently right now in North Dakota. So I do think that um, it's not going to push it back, but what you might see is a more aggressive bid. And that's going to be great for farmers to see as they're moving forward and seeing that cash. But I think the battle comes on the cash side of things uh, more or less
1: than really a change in policy. But when you look at what's happening in the economy, gas prices hitting a new record, not to mention the whole situation with diesel. Naomi, do you see the economy weighing on meat demand as we head into the height of grilling season?
6: It's a mixed answer. In the big picture, it might allow for some depressed um, demand for Some of the higher cuts of steak and some of the higher cuts of beef but here's the reality there is no substitution for beef if i want to have taco tuesday night with my kids if i want to make spaghetti if i'm hungry for a burger i'm not going to substitute turkey ground turkey for it i'm just not so what we've seen in previous years like in 2014 we had high-priced crude oil we had high-priced cattle and yeah the demand faltered a little bit but it doesn't disappear because again there's no substitute for it What you see are moms starting to maybe put in a little bit less poundage into their recipes for for mealtime, but the demand doesn't quit. And when I drive around my local community, which is a really neat mix of white collar and blue collar, restaurants are still full every single night of the week. And people are ordering a variety of meals on their plates.
1: So is there anything then that you see really being a barrier for cattle prices than in the coming months?
6: Well, short term, we still have the reality that the front month cattle contracts are reflecting cash values. Cash values continue to kind of hold near 130 to uh, 135 every once in a while, they'll push up to 140. So the front month contracts continue to reflect that. Right now, front month cattle are trading at a discount to the cash. The deferred contracts, I love that December contract. It's oversold. It needs to come back up. We have a cattle on feed report on Friday afternoon, and that's going to be a bigger impact for next week as far as where prices can go. I do think that the deferred cattle actually need to come back up for prices. And I'm very well aware that, you know, feed costs for all of these producers are high and we have to keep an eye on pasture conditions coming up as well. But again, deferred cattle contracts, I think is still a friendly story.
1: Naomi, Christie, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We really appreciate it. We need to take a quick break right here on U.S. Farm Report and then we'll be back with much more.
0: It's time to sign up for the 2022 United Pork Americas Conference in Orlando, Florida. Register today at unitedporkamericas.com and join us September 7th through the 9th.
1: Well, wheat has been in the spotlight lately as the war in Ukraine is causing concern about global wheat supplies. In the U.S., the Kansas Wheat Tour waited across Kansas wheat fields this week, showing a crop that has been stricken by drought. And in a neighboring Colorado, just two months ago we visited Brian Brooks, a farmer who showed us a dire drought situation that robbed the area of wheat. And as Gabe Cohen shows us, producers facing drought are also feeling the crushing impact of rising costs due to inflation.
8: It's gonna to be tough. Just six weeks from winter wheat harvest, Brian Brooks is staring down 4,000 acres of barren Colorado farmland. DRIED OUT BY A BRUTAL DROUGHT THAT COULD DRIVE FOOD PRICES EVEN HIGHER. THERE'S NOTHING YOU CAN salvage HERE? OH, NO, WE'RE DONE. I MEAN, YOU WALK THROUGH HERE AND IT'S SO FRUSTRATING TO SEE ALL YOUR HARD WORK IS SITTING HERE BLOWN AWAY. NOW IT'S TIME TO PLANT CORN. WOULD IT EVEN GROW? NO. WE'D JUST BE WASTING OUR our MONEY. A SEVERE DROUGHT FROM KANSAS TO CALIFORNIA HAS PUT 71 MILLION CROP ACRES AT RISK, 22% OF THE NATION'S CROPS. Farms are rationing water, some destroying crops that they know won't survive. In the Midwest, it's the opposite. Farms are soaked and planting is weeks behind. It's just one more strain on farmers with costs skyrocketing for labor, fuel, seed and fertilizer. We're planning less to try to survive to live another year. Mark Arnish, like many, is switching crops and planting half as many acres. Consumers without a question are gonna feel the pinch at the grocery store. US food prices keep climbing up 9.4% from a year ago and expected to rise at least 5 to 6% this year. The war in Ukraine is adding to it, sending global prices sky high and creating a hunger crisis, with Ukraine and Russia's grain industries largely cut off. We're reducing the red tape. On Wednesday, the Biden administration announced new measures to help U.S. farmers, doubling funding for fertilizer production and expanding access to double cropping insurance and technologies that reduce the need for fertilizer.
0: We can make sure the American agriculture exports will make up for the gap in Ukrainian supplies.
8: But a new USDA report is projecting less supply and higher prices in the U.S. on grains like wheat and corn. And there's growing concern crop problems could add more stress to the food supply chain.
4: Those drought impacts are going to result in in less food being on the market, which is going to further put pressure on food prices on top of some of the inflationary pressures we've already been seeing.
8: At City Bakery in Denver, Michael Bortz has already seen his cost of flour nearly double. I lose a lot of sleep for it. He's hiked his prices 20% to cover it. If we prices keep rising, will you have to raise your prices? Yes. I mean, there's no way around that. A problem that could grow from this desolate dirt where nothing else will. So just pray for rain.
1: Well, farmers from Colorado to Texas are already penciling in the impacts of the possibility of little to no crop this year, experts say on the consumer side, it may take some time before it starts to impact the prices shoppers see at the store. But remember, crop prices, those are just one small piece of the price puzzle. All right, when we come back, farmers matching up with farmers. And no, not farmers only style. Customer support is next.
3: We need a new app.
1: Well, labor is one of the top concerns for farmers and ranchers, but one viewer has an idea and one that could keep retired farmers busy in the fields.
3: Well, this is embarrassing. I received a brilliant idea for customer support that I have managed to misplace. Now my scribbled notes suggest it was from a gentleman named something like Kinderneck. But that may or may not be the actual name because I can't find any trace when I search my emails. If what I'm about to say was your suggestion, please resend your initial message. This is a double mugger. This is the gist of what I remember he wrote. I'm a recently retired farmer who has always enjoyed farm work. I wish there were some way to match up old guys like me with farmers who could use help during planting or harvest. The old guys would have something to do, and farmers wouldn't have to train a guy from scratch. Sir, I just realized what you are suggesting. Geezer Uber. I'm much more sensitive than I used to be to that change of life we call retirement, and certainly identify with your request. Like other fortunate producers, I got to keep doing many of the jobs I loved uh, doing before because my son took over our, our, our operation. Many others did not have that good fortune. The few weeks where I get to drive trucks and tractors and play farmer, and maybe if I can manage the new learning curve, get on his new combine, are welcome sources of meaning for my life and a sense of contributing. Now maybe it already exists, but some sort of renegeser business could make this beneficial exchange happen. Former farmers wanting to get back in the game could post our experience and our preferences about hours and travel and type of work along with any other pertinent information while operators needing help provide similar data about what they're looking for. Then it's just swipe left or right to get matched up. Farmers often have unique problems with retirement and losing the feeling of being useful can be one of the big ones. The money wouldn't hurt either, both for financial reasons as is, and as tangible proof we still have some value. No doubt, some farm wives might welcome our occasional absence as well. Now, there'd have to be some rules about advice giving, which some of us would struggle with, however. Still, if such an app doesn't exist, I think rit has opportunity written all over it.
1: Thanks, John. And that QR code will take you straight to customer support playlist on our YouTube page. By the way, some of these services actually do exist. Ag Butler app is one of those that comes to mind. Now it's not just focused on older farmers, but it does help match labor up with those in need. All right, and we come back, the recent derecho in South Dakota and Minnesota caused devastation for farms and for one dairy, they had to do nearly the impossible feat. From the Farm is next.
8: Got equipment to sell privately but tired of scams and hassles? Visit machinerypeat.com and click sell mine. Machinerypeat.com, the simple and secure way to buy and sell equipment online.
1: Well, just over a week ago, hurricane force winds struck South Dakota and western Minnesota. What was later confirmed as a derecho brought winds north of 100 miles per hour. And the damage, well, it was widespread. Farmers are still measuring the impact from that system, but for one dairy, the devastation was quick as the storm crushed their milk parlor. According to dairyherd.com, Global Dairy, based in South Dakota, saw the roof on their main parallel milking parlor collapse from the storm. That building is used to milk 1,700 cows, and with time of the essence in the dairy world, those 1,700 cows still needed a place to be milked twice a day. But this is where the story gets good. Victory Farms and Millbank stepped in to help, offering up space to allow the displaced cows to be milked at a parlor 60 miles away. Now, the odds of finding one location to house and milk 1,700 cows, those are slim. But thanks to Victory Farms, that's exactly what happened last week, and it helped Global Dairy barely miss a beat despite the devastating storm. And our reporting partners at DairyHerd.com have the full story. Just go to that QR code, and that will take you straight to the story that details the devastation and what the family did to try to move those cattle last minute. All right, that's all the time we have this weekend for U.S. Farm Report. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.